0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. I'm Yvette. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimer, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Unfortunately, Elisa is sitting this one out, but we are lucky to have the former Chair and current Senior Counselor of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, Professor Harvey Rishikoff. He's also the Director of Policy and Cybersecurity Research and Visiting Research Professor at the University of Maryland Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security. He has worked in a number of intelligence agencies in his time as a national security lawyer, including as legal counsel to the deputy director to the FBI and the senior policy advisor to the National Counterintelligence Executive. Hello, Harvey.
1: Thank you, Yvette. I must say it's great to see you guys and it's great to be back on. And I'm very excited that Seth has agreed to join us today. I've known Seth for many, many years and he is one of the more thoughtful interesting commentators in the space. So I think we're very lucky to have him.
0: As usual, Harvey is off script and has not allowed me the opportunity to introduce <laughs> our guest, who is <laughs> Seth Jones. So he has jumped the gun. He's very excited to have Seth here. Excited. <laughs> um, Seth Jones is currently with the nonpartisan think tank CSIS. You may know him from his outstanding books on terrorism, like Hunting in the Shadows, The Pursuit of Al-Qaeda since 9-11, or in the graveyard of empires, America's war in Afghanistan. Seth is here today, though, because he is also an expert on domestic terrorism. And the FBI director, Christopher Wray, has identified domestic terrorism as the greatest threat our national security um, apparatus is undergoing at this time. Seth, I too welcome you to the podcast.
2: Uh, it's great to be <laughs> on. Thank you both.
0: So let's dive right in. Seth, how did the threat topography change from 9-11 and outside threats to include Antifa, QAnon, Boogaloo, and internal, and other internal dissent?
2: Well, I think it's important to note um, in the years after, immediately after 9-11, I mean, there's no question that the focus of the threat in the U.S. homeland was coming originally from uh, al-Qaeda and individuals either associated with or inspired by al-Qaeda, uh, not just obviously the 9-11 attacks, but in the subsequent years after that, there were multiple plots, including uh, the, the nearly successful plot by Najibullah Uh We had plots after that, including uh, David Headley plotting attacks overseas from the north side of Chicago. We had Umar Farouk the uh, underwear bomber um, uh, partially detonated a bomb on its way into Detroit from Europe. But over, over the next decade, what we began to see is a migration away from Salafi jihadist terrorism in the US. And there were some attacks. Uh, there was the uh, Omar Mateen attack in uh, Orlando with the Pulse nightclub. We saw attacks in San Bernardino. We saw one on Halloween. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, right around the Hudson River in New York City. It was a vehicle attack. But for the most part, there's been a serious decline, which is a little bit different from continuing uh, jihadist attacks in Europe, including one recently in France, a beheading. And instead, what we've seen is, is a rise in white supremacist activity. And then in 2020, even a rise in anti-fascist and some anarchist violence in the US. I mean, there are a whole range of reasons why that's probably the case, but I just wanted to highlight one uh, notable change and certainly a change from this last period of white supremacist and other activity in the 1990s, which is we're seeing a massive proliferation of activity online uh, and a range of actors extremists that are that are uh, operating on mainstream platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Telegram, lesser known platforms like Gab, Discord, uh Minds and BitChute and then forums like Stormfront and Iron Forge in ways that connect extremists overseas. So I think, you know, the digital platforms have helped sort of explode domestic extremism in the US in ways that we haven't seen in quite some time.
1: Uh, great stuff. It's actually it's quite intriguing because you sort of prefigured sort of the questions I think many of us would like to hear you ask and hear you respond to, which is that, you know, we sort of understood the roots and ideological motivations of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I think we had a sort of a peg on what their their vision was for the future and their criticism. But you, you've now highlighted the issues of the white supremacists and these anarchists. Um, and they seem to be motivated by somewhat different animation as to what's driving them. But, and then you've also mentioned that what's interesting is their use of these platforms, the new social platforms as being a new form of tactic or let's say targets. Could you elaborate more and do you what, what do you think is going to happen in the near term? What do you think the role of these platforms should be in this in this space? Because you know there's a great deal of controversy about Section 230 of the of the Act, and I'll be curious as to what is your take about what would be the appropriate way that you think both the government and the platform should respond.
2: Yeah, I mean on the on the evolution, even before getting to the platforms, on the evolution that you talked about, I think that's. One thing that's really interesting about uh, the domestic extremist landscape in the US is is actually how decentralized it is. So whether it's white supremacist groups, militias, anti-fascists, whether it's Boogaloo or, or anarchists, what we don't see a lot of is hierarchical organizations, ones where we have a clear leader, a command and control structure, um, you know, something along the lines of what we've seen over the past couple of years with the Islamic State, ISIS, or even Al-Qaeda, which has a leader, has a command and control structure. It's a very decentralized apparatus. And that's true online. And I think this gets to part of the challenge online is that it's so decentralized, and there's so much going on, Some, in some cases, connected, some cases, very disconnected and disparate. Um, i I do think though that uh, you know i'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I would just say someone that has been in the terrorism sphere for a couple of decades, I think the line that becomes extremely dangerous is when individuals online beginning uh, begin to support violence uh, or or even the threat of violence against targets. And I think in that case, um, it's certainly well within reason for, some of the, the digital platforms uh, to take content down that violates their terms of service. I think the challenge that we face, though, is that what we're seeing with extremists is as they lose some of their access to platforms like Facebook, they've just gone to second tier locations. Mm-hmm. And so it hasn't, I mean, what the, the downside for them is that you know, some of the big platforms, Twitter, uh, Facebook, are a, a great opportunity for them to reach, or reach a wide audience. They start to have a much more targeted audience as they get into discord and gab and much less uh, ability to to hit larger populations. But I do think there is a, you know, there are important steps, especially as they get into the violence stage. And, and this gets us into the elections, because I think we've seen a lot of of rhetoric about about violence or wording that's getting very close to violence in and around the election period.
0: Yeah, I'm. The Senate just had a hearing today um, when we we're recording on this topic, and um, I think that it really highlights the challenge that social media companies um, have when they are trying to figure out what kinds of speech. Um, to mute or block, uh, especially because it is considered to be uh, suppressing uh, people's voices, right? Like this hearing was, um, you know, a lot of, of conservative um, senators that were, you know, talking about uh, when the president's tweets have been contextualized because they are misleading or they are in, like viewed to be inciting violence. How? How do social media platforms sort of like resist some of the political uh, you know, forces when it comes to you know, enforcing their terms of service?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a difficult question because a, a number of, of uh, e- even networks often will use political rhetoric in, uh, in how they talk. I mean, it's, what's interesting is, is the if we take the rise above movement, uh, a range of their individuals uh, were arrested uh, for uh, extremist activity. Uh, a number of them went overseas to meet with extremists in places like Germany, Ukraine, Italy, uh, including to celebrate Adolf Hitler's birthday. They they called themselves, and, and you can see this in um, in criminal complaints, for example, they called themselves Trumpenkriegers. So they invoked. Uh, political leaders in the language and how they how they've talked about it. I still think um, there there are areas which do get concerning and which do violate uh, or potentially violate terms of service when they go more you know when individuals go more than just uh, getting involved in political comments, but when they start to incite uh, violence. And I think. In that case, regardless of what someone's political background is or or to what degree they're using rhetoric, once they start to incite violence and they encourage individuals to uh, conduct attacks against government officials or judges, uh, or to conduct attacks against individuals based on their ethnicity or immigrants, and uh, then I think uh, there are, there are potential, uh, there are potential issues. And this is true on what some call the violent far right, as much as it is on the violent, uh, far left. So, I mean, I've, I've, I watched some anti-fascist sympathetic sites come down off of Facebook because they were supporting violence against law enforcement officials. And that crossed the line for Facebook. And That's more than just political disagreement, that's incitement to violence.
1: Um, Thanks, uh, Seth. I guess one of the questions also to get your more fulsome answer, uh, a lot of the movement seems to be also tied to foreign entities, right? We've had um, the Mueller investigation, we've had those indictments that have come down of the role that the Russians are playing in the context of a variety of uh, influence operations. Um, What's your take about um, how one should think about it and what's the best way to approach this problem?
2: Yeah, I I think the Russians, uh, my judgment, the Russians are the predominant state actor involved in this arena. Uh, I, I would characterize it as more propagating, and they're not really creating, a, I, at least my awareness, not creating a lot of content. They're certainly not creating the fissures that are occurring, but they're, they're propagating. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I break Russian activity down into three types. One is, uh, is sort of online propaganda, um, their use of bots and trolls to uh, push out and in particular it's been types of information like white supremacist information alt-right information uh, mm-hmm. publicly so uh there are a number of indications that the the elements of the russian government are connected to the russian government have uh, pushed out uh information along those lines and really to create fissures second is uh, the Russians have provided, we know, support to militants that have um, gone to train in places like Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is in some ways as a foreign fighter battlefield for extremists, including some white supremacists and uh, some extreme right entities. And I've talked to a number of European law enforcement and intelligence agencies who have expressed serious concern about individuals from their countries going over to train in Ukraine with some help by Russian organizations. They're in like Donbass and Eastern Ukraine areas where there are Russian backed rebels uh, and then have gone back into Western Europe, haven't necessarily violated any laws, but do pose a threat. And the third issue uh, that the Russians pose is is sanctuary. So Mm -hmm. one of the more dangerous white supremacist groups operating in the US is the base. Uh, they lifted that from what, uh, what okay. Al-Qaeda called itself, yes. Okay. And it's, it is more than I think just a coincidence that uh, Ronaldo Nazaro, o- also called Roman Wolf, is mm-hmm. uh, according to a number of uh, indications based out of mm-hmm. St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's operating uh, in Russian territory. I think I think the Russians you know they haven't I'm not sure they've created a lot, but they've certainly tried to foment um, uh, extremism, including on digital platforms
0: so I'd love to talk kind of a, a little bit more about you know how these groups think about themselves right A lot of the language um, in in some of these terrorist groups is rooted in the concept of the militia, um, which is you know something that's that's uh, found in the Constitution. Uh, and it's been uh, cited in Supreme Court cases uh, as as uh, something that, you know, we hold dear in the American tradition. Um, what are, you know, can you talk about like the concept of the militia and how it's kind of morphed over time? I, I, I just, there's a departure from what traditionally was viewed as a militia, um, which I guess the mainstream would refer to as the, the National Guard and what these, like, you know, these homegrown militias are, are characterizing themselves as
2: yeah it's a good question and i think the concept of militia is actually changing even in 2020 itself i mean if we go back to the uh, around the time of the constitution and, and even around the time uh that the u.s was fighting for independence uh george washington had to rely on state militias uh to fight against the the british so they were they were an important component of um u.s independence I think anybody who's read George Washington and his letters and and his um, uh, some of the better histories on Washington would also note that you know he had a lot of critical comments about the militias. They were generally and they were generally pejorative. They were not reliable. They were poor fighters. Uh, so he, he, even he was critical of the role they played, however important it was in independence. More recently. Um, We've got sort of three kinds of militias. Uh, first is we've got what I would call sort of armed fraternities, and these are these are local networks that don't necessarily they don't pose a threat to society per se. They're more opportunities for people to go out and train and shoot guns and and drink beer. And uh, you know, I mean, they they uh, they're able to do it in a way that is legal. Uh, they don't pose a threat. Um, But they, uh, but they go have fun and they, uh, they train and they, they're, they're armed. The second are a little bit more dangerous um, and they are the violent anti-government militias where they view the government as an enemy. And I think we, you know, one of the more recent cases was the plot against the governor of Michigan where a number of individuals connected to militias in states like Michigan and Delaware conducted a plot, reached out to another larger militia in Michigan, the Wolverine Watchmen, uh, in case they needed access to two or three hundred individuals for an armed assault. And so, I mean, in that case, uh, this was targeting a sitting governor of the state. And, and, And so that second category is dangerous and is a threat. There's a third form, which is somewhere in between. And we've seen seen local militias form that aren't necessarily anti-government that are attempting to protect property. Uh, We saw them during uh, some of the demonstrations uh, in the summer of 2020. They appeared in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, Oakdale, California, Um, in some cases they tried to cooperate with law enforcement agencies. In other cases, I spoke to law enforcement officials who said they had, they wanted nothing to do with militias. They didn't want any armed groups in and around their jurisdictions. It was just too problematic. But we've seen them go in. They are, their argument is that they're there to basically supplement law enforcement activities to try to prevent further looting of businesses I mean, this is the Kyle Rittenhouse case in Kenosha. So uh, there they're not necessarily anti-government, but having armed people on the street with assault rifles, in some cases with uh, explosives, certainly does present the potential for violence to occur, especially when there are demonstrators from, uh, from, from the other pol- uh, side of the political spectrum. So I, I think, you know, militias can include people from all of those categories.
0: It's really interesting that you've noted sort of like the quasi legality of some of these groups, right? Like I recall listening to um, the sheriff uh, of uh, in the in the uh, Governor Whitmer case actually, you know, really leaning into the presumption of innocence and basically saying, you know, they might have been trying to effectuate a citizen's arrest. And, you know, they believed they had a, a, a foundation um, that the governor had committed treason. And so, you know, they the, the sheriff was actually you know, giving all kinds of signals that the, this type of activity was supported by law enforcement, right? Like, there was isn't any way to really read the comments beyond an endorsement of law enforcement. And while that might not be like the majority view in the law enforcement community, it was actually pretty surprising to have a sheriff making those kinds of comments. And there was also, you know, you referred to um, Kyle Rittenhouse, there was also kind of like the fact that he was not arrested, right, in the moment, that was seen to be, uh, you know, acceptable to be carrying this, weapon around during these uh, peaceful protests. So my question is like, how, if law enforcement itself is blurring the lines between what's legal and what's not, how is it possible for, you know, people to know what is legal and what's not?
2: That's a very good question. I think, I think there's a lot of gray in the answer to that question. I mean, I I think it's, look, I think it's pretty clear cut when, a group of individuals are plotting an attack against a sitting government official um, that that crosses a lot of lines, including legal ones, regardless of what someone may say to try to defend them. I think it crosses lines when 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 they're plotting an attack. Um, I think it becomes a little bit more difficult to adjudicate when individuals are coming out into the streets when there are broader demonstrations They say they're protecting private property. Uh, There's a lot going on in and around that specific city. And we're seeing this again, we're seeing this in major urban areas. We're seeing it in Portland. We've seen it in Minneapolis. We're also seeing it in places like Oakdale, California, which is much smaller uh, uh, setting. And there, uh, they're primarily defensive as opposed to offensive. So... Is that illegal if they're on private property with guns protecting or trying to protect a a business from being looted, glass from being thrown in? Probably not illegal. Um, And I think that's the challenge we face is what we call the security dilemma. It's a term from game theory where it becomes very difficult to assess in an urban setting when tensions are high and someone's carrying an assault rifle, is that defensive or is that offensive? How do you know that? Especially if, if again, there are individuals from multiple sides, politically and ideologically, tensions are high. How do you know whether that weapon is offensive or it's defensive? And the, and the answer is you don't know uh, in that specific setting. And I think this is what makes the current condition we're in, in the US, uh, pretty ex- uh, explosive.
1: That, I, that used to be called the wild, wild west. So uh, I guess my the issue is, uh, it's a hard question. You know, Our colleague, uh, Audrey Cronin, had written an interesting book about how does terrorism end. And she had laid out a variety of four or five ways that these groups usually resolve themselves one way or another. But get, get, based on your experience, how do you see this domestic terrorism ending? What is the end game for us uh, domestically, given where we are currently?
2: Well, one issue we've seen, and, and uh, right around the time uh, Audrey published her book, I published one right about the same time, yeah. also on how terrorist groups end, and yeah. one of the one of the primary factors at that point that I, I had identified was effective uh, law enforcement penetration of organizations, um, mm-hmm. even more than say military forces, it's really law enforcement agencies and the justice side of them uh, that are important. And so, I mean, I, I, think, I think one thing that's worth noting is, is with a lot of the concerns right now about domestic terrorism, The number of fatalities in the U.S. from domestic terrorism is actually quite low. Between January 1st, 2020 and August 31st, 2020, we counted five fatalities due to what we called uh, domestic terrorism, which is extremely low compared to the mid-90s when we saw the, uh, the Timothy McVeigh attack in Oklahoma City, Low compared to uh, some of the years in the 1960s and the 70s when we saw large scale violence by uh, the Ku Klux Klan, the Weather Underground, Black Liberation Army, some of the Puerto Rican uh, groups operating in the US. And part of that is has been, I think, effective uh, penetration by law enforcement agencies of some of these extremist networks and then the effective prosecution of them uh, in the United States, and and the, the Michigan militia case is a good example where as uh, as that small uh, network of about a half dozen individuals plotted the attack and they reached out to the Wolverine Watchmen, they were reaching out to an organization that had FBI penetration, and so, I mean, a good example of, I think, for these kinds of, for, for this kind of domestic terrorism, I think, to start to end um, the FBI has got to continue and local law enforcement agencies to con- continue to shift gears away from the jihadist terrorism, which you don't see a lot of threats there. There were some concerns a few years ago about Hezbollah and, the, and Shia terrorism, uh, including ones that were supported by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards could force. I think the, the, the focus has to be domestic groups organizations, networks, individuals right now. So I, I think that's a that's a key part of it.
0: Well, I got to say that is that's, you know, optimistic. I'm, I'm glad that you have kind of an optimistic view. Um, but that said, the threat is not zero. Can you just talk about what some of the, you know, the greatest uh, domestic terror threats that exist in the United States still?
2: Yeah, by the way, uh, it, 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 the optimism is more like a decades-long view rather than a weeks or months or necessarily even years. Um, I think there's there are a lot of reasons to be concerned. I mean, I think as I look at the next couple of um, even months ahead, uh, I, I, I would say we started off this conversation by talking in part about the fact that much of the domestic extremist landscape in the US is pretty decentralized. That, that could definitely change. I mean, we do see some centralized organizations like the base Adam Waffen division, which now includes the National Socialist Order, uh, the Fuhrer Creek division. It's got some uh, semi-organized, what, I, what I'd call movements like the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, um, the Boogaloos, uh, even organizations like QAnon, some of the local militias, um, anti-fascists, including uh, some organization at local level, including John Brown Gun Club, and then and then anarchists uh, and some local anarchist network. And I think, for example, you know, with a with a Republican victory in the elections, uh, we certainly could see major street demonstrations and violence. I mean, I've already been keeping a close eye on the. Um, digital platforms, there is a lot of discussion about what to do with a Republican victory and to hit the streets. I've, I mean, I'm talking about the violent side, and there's also a lot of discussion about what to do with a Democratic victory and uh, how to organize resistance against the government more from a white supremacist than a militia angle, the, the thing that would concern me most, I think, is uh, the, the growing formation of actual groups in the United States. So if we go from sort of decentralized movements to actual groups, the concern there is that they've got much better attack planning with a group, operational security, uh, they can organize and train better, and there'll be a much more dangerous... Threat uh, to society. So, if we start to see better organization, more command and control, group leaders, uh, more effective and unified propaganda, I think we'll have a much more serious problem on our hands in 2021.
1: Uh, Seth, uh, thanks. You know, uh Thanksgiving's coming up, and uh, one of your wonderful recent books of covert action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War: The Struggle in Poland sort of lays out and detail, it's a great stocking stuff for, for Thanksgiving. But one of the ironies that I'm gonna pose the question to you is that you lay out how, you know, the US helped fund underground newspapers, support radio programs, conduct proactive information campaign, all covertly. And it was a very effective information operation. And now do you think we're sort of reaping what we sow which is we're having an extensive potential information operations coming at us uh, from our adversaries. And uh, these groups are being motivated by what appears to be some foreign influence. Uh, is What's your reaction to that? Is what's good for the goose, is good for the gander? Or this have they stepped over a international line here in your mind of what is taking place with these information operations?
2: Well, I think you know part of the issue is that when we look at the Cold War, which is which is uh, which is the case study that you highlight. Yeah. KGB was very aggressive at, at conducting what they called active measures, mm-hmm. um, and you know active measures included a range of of significant disinformation campaigns, including probably one of the most successful of all time, which was the uh, the effort of. Uh, From the KGB to tie the spread of AIDS to uh, its production, false production at U.S. military labs at Fort Detrick, Maryland, that the whole thing was was a hoax. But the KGB, as you know, it was an effective campaign. It took root, public opinion, even in the U.S. and in a number of African countries, changed and accepted. Uh, this this falsity that the U.S. was involved in a, uh, a, a you know biological weapons program that that got ugly that led to uh, AIDS. Um, you highlighted the CIA campaign in Poland. I mean, I would say, look that that the information arena is is a is a, a good example of where competition is occurring. When people talk about you know this shift in the U.S from uh, counterterrorism to great power competition. I think the reality is, particularly with, with countries like Russia, competition is not about a conventional or even a nuclear fight in the Baltic states. It's about daily, even hourly competition, including in the information arena. What I, what I would say should be a big line in the sand for the U.S. is, and, and is not for the Russians, they are very willing to put out disinformation, outright lies, as they did with the AIDS campaign, and as they did with the origins of COVID-19, where, uh, much like the Chinese, they argued that the origins were a U.S. military participating in military games Mm -hmm. in Wuhan in 2019, complete fabrication. I think, you know, it's one thing for the U.S. to conduct an information campaign, including public diplomacy, which is done by the State Department or, or other organizations. But I think the U.S. has got to stick to its core principles. It should not be disinformation or misinformation. You know, it's one thing to provide information about corruption in Russia or other places. I think it's a, it's a, it's a bridge too far, and the U.S. should never get into, uh, into disinformation. That I would strongly discourage.
1: Right, so at all that's what we say is that the last battleground is the, in your case, the 10 inches between your ears, which is cognitive security. Uh, what is it that people are persuaded or not persuaded by, Seth? It's gonna be, I look forward to, you, to your scribblings and writing in this arena in the future. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Thank you.
0: So Seth Jones of CSIS author of Definitive Works on Terrorism for more than a decade now, has been our guest this evening. Seth, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure.
1: And uh, don't forget to hit the subscribe subscribe button on your listening app of choice to be able to get all these extraordinary interviews, including now Seth.
0: We'd also uh, love for you to take a look at the notes of the cast because we are going to link to Seth's recent articles on the tactics and targets of domestic terrorists and the escalating terrorism problem in the United States. We'll also hyperlink you to Seth books. books. Seth, please come back and join us soon.
2: I will, thank you for the invite.
0: And thank you out there for listening to NSLT. We'll be back next week with more content for the COVID protecting, mask wearing, but intellectually curious out there. Be sure to send us comments or feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABA or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And don't forget, again, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone. Be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart and even though we have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge and growth and avoid that domestic terrorism uh, that's coming across your Twitter and Facebook feeds.